First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Bibles today, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is our second week in this series called I'm Broken. What we saw last week is that even the heroes of the Bible, even a man uh, like David, a man who was called the man after God's own heart, even he was a broken and sinful person, just like us. Last week in chapter 11, we read about what is really the low point of David's whole life. Uh, From the roof of his palace, he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba taking a bath, and he desires her, and in the end he takes her and sleeps with her. Uh, She is the wife, though, of one of his very best soldiers, a man named Uriah. When she becomes pregnant, David does everything he can think of to cover his sin, but his plans are frustrated, and so in his panic and frustration, he even goes as far as to come up with a plan to murder Uriah and to take him out of the way. And then after he's only been dead for one week, David sends for Bathsheba and takes her as his own wife. At the end of chapter 11, nine months have passed, and the son that David and Bathsheba had conceived is now born. It seems like nobody is the wiser that David has gotten away with all that he has done. But if you look at the very last line of chapter 11, it reminds us that God has been watching everything that David has been doing. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw it all. And in our story today in chapter 12, God is about to confront his king about the things that he has been doing. And you know, as we read this story today, the question really isn't, are we a broken person like David was, or uh, have we sinned as David sinned? The answer to that is, yes, we are, and yes, we have. So that isn't the question. The question really for us today is, what will we do when, like David, our sin is exposed? Let's read about what David does. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 15. The Word of God says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? To do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Father, would you be with us today as we study this portion of your word? Father, would you by your Holy Spirit's power and by the power of your word, would you cut through all of our defenses? We might come face to face with you. Father, would you bring your conviction of sin to bear in our hearts? And Father, also, would you help us to see what a merciful, loving God you are in spite of all of our sin? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is such a powerful story. And really, with the time that we have, we could focus on a number of different things here. We could focus on God's judgment upon sin, because that's here in this story. We could uh, focus on uh, the consequences of our sin, because that is here in the story as well, and we'll, we'll talk about all of that, but if I had to summarize this whole uh, story into one word, I would choose the word grace. Because in this story, God shows David, and, and church, God shows us unbelievable, undeserved grace. I want us to see as we walk through this story five kinds of grace that God shows David and that God shows us. First of all, the grace of pursuit. The grace of pursuit. And we won't spend long on this one, but I just don't want us to miss the significance of the very first line in this story. Look at verse 1. It says, very simply, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who was Nathan? Nathan was the prophet of the Lord. He was the same prophet, by the way, that God sent to David back in chapter 7 to give David that unbelievable message that one of his descendants was going to reign on the throne forever, and that descendant was none other than Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. This same Nathan now 
sent by God to go back to David, this time with a very, very different message. This, this was not an easy message to deliver. This was not a pleasant message. God was about to confront David, the king, with his sin, and Nathan was the mouthpiece for that confrontation. And yet I don't want us to miss the fact that the very reason why God sends his prophet Nathan to confront King David is because God in his grace wanted to give David an opportunity to repent. If God did not wish to give David that opportunity, then there was no reason really to send the prophet at all. God could have just simply judged David and that was that, but he doesn't. He sends his prophet to David and even that, just the sending of Nathan to David, is itself evidence of God's grace in David's life. And the same is true for us. Maybe right now you would would say and you would admit, I'm not where I need to be. In my walk with God. I know there's some things in my life that aren't, that aren't right. I know right now the conversation that God wants to have with me, and in fact needs to have with me, is not, not a pleasant one. And yet, to realize that just the very fact that God would meet you and confront you with his word, that God would pursue you, is itself an evidence of his grace. Imagine what it would be like if we sinned against God and we ran from God and He did not pursue us at all. If He just simply allowed us to run. But God in His love leaves the 99 to go after the wandering one. He pursues us and that is His grace. And friend, maybe that's why you're here today because God is pursuing you. And even today, right now, in this service, He is calling you to come back to Him. That's the grace of his pursuit. There's a second kind of grace that God shows David and that God shows us, and that's the grace of conviction. The grace of conviction. Now what's interesting to me in this story is is the way that Nathan chooses to confront David. He doesn't just come right at him, does he? Right? He doesn't just kind of barge into David's presence and say, you murdering, adulterous man, you're the worst sinner I ever saw. That's not what he does, right? He comes with this story. Some have called it a parable about these two other guys and this lamb. And this is how he comes. And, uh, you know, every time I, I read this part of the story, it, it just this part of the story makes me laugh because it reminds me, uh, my wife Megan will do this exact same thing with our sons. Uh, there will be times where they're in trouble and she'll sit them down and she'll make up this story about other people and, 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 and they agree with her about the story. Right? They'll say, you're right, Mom. Those, that is terrible what those people did. And then she says, and you just did something exactly like that. Right? And she, and she sticks in the knife, the proverbial knife, right, before they even see it coming. Parents, you should try it. It, it is very effective. And, and it's effective here, right, because stories have a way of lowering our defenses. When we think it's about us, we get defensive. When we think it's about somebody else, we can see the truth very clearly. We can see who's right and who's wrong. We can make judgments about it, and that's what David does here. Well, Nathan's story is a very simple one. It's a story about two men in the same city. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man had, had tons of flocks and herds. He had everything that he could ask for. Then there was a poor man who had nothing but just one little 
lamb. And it says he raised that lamb like a pet, right? He, that, that lamb drank from his own cup. I, I think it's kind of disgusting, right? I don't want to share a glass of tea with a lamb, but that's what this man does. And he just, he's painting the story for us uh, of just how, uh, how affectionate this man was towards this lamb. He was like a member of the, of the family. And then a traveler comes to visit the rich man, and hospitality was so huge, so important in this culture. This traveler had to be fed. He had to be taken care of. But, but instead of going to his own flocks and his own herds and taking one of them that he probably wouldn't even have missed, instead he goes next door to this poor man, and he takes the one little pet lamb that he had, and he takes it, and he barbecues it on his green egg. And he serves it to his guest. It's just so mean, right? And so cruel and so selfish and so hateful. When this man had so much and yet he would go and take this one lamb from this poor neighbor. And David, as he is hearing this story, David is often as the supreme judge in the land of Israel. He is called to settle disputes and he thinks this is a real dispute. He thinks that there are two real people in his kingdom that this has happened to, and he is being asked to, uh, to give a judgment on this case. And so that's how he's listening to the story. And as he's listening to it, he's, his butt, blood pressure is rising. And after he has heard this, he's heard enough. He didn't need to hear any more information. He's already made a judgment, and he pronounces his judgment. He said, the man who did that, he needs to die. He needs to pay back four times what he took from his neighbor. That's what he says. Nathan has David right where he wants him. And then comes the most powerful moment in this story. Right after David says, the man who did that should die, Nathan looks at him in the eyes and says, you are that man. You are the man, David. And I can only imagine how David felt in that moment. He probably felt about two inches tall. But Nathan wasn't done, was he? No, Nathan was just getting started to deliver the message that God sent him to deliver. And it's, it's powerful, too, because he delivers it in the first person. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then from then on, he says, God says to you, I say this. God says, David, I took you from the sheepfold and I raised you up to be king. I protected you from King Saul. I gave you everything that belonged to the house of King Saul. Everything was, was yours, David. I did all of this for you. And then just kind of at the end, just the punchline, he says, and David, if that had been too little, if you had just wanted anything else, all you had to do was ask. And I would have done it. But you didn't. And why was God saying all of that to David? I think he was saying that to David because David's sin looks even uglier, even darker against the backdrop of the grace that God had already shown David in his life. And it's the same for us, Christian. God has shown such incredible grace to us in our lives. And against that backdrop of how good and how gracious God has been to us, our sin, and we just need to admit this, our sin looks even uglier because of all that God did for us. 
Verse 9, God basically says to David, Why on earth, after everything I have done for you, have you despised the commandment of the Lord? And that's what David did. It wasn't as though he didn't know the commandment of God. It wasn't as if he didn't know that God's word said don't commit adultery and God's word said don't murder. He knew it full well, but he despised it. God said, you treated my law like you hated it. And then in verse 10, he says, and you despise me. In other words, when you treat my law like you hate my law, you're treating me like you hate me. That's what you did. And and then just in in rapid fire succession, almost like a machine gun, he just starts spitting out everything that David has done that God knew full well he had done. Must have been an eye-opening moment for David to hear his prophet look him in the face and say, you killed Uriah with the sword. And you took Bathsheba, his wife, to be your wife. God was saying to David, you have murdered, you have deceived, you have committed adultery, you have stolen away another man's wife, and do not think that I did not see it all. And then in in verses 10 through 12, even before David is given a chance to speak, Nathan tells David what some of the consequences of his sin were going to be. And and as we study the rest of this book of 2 Samuel, we're going to find out that every single thing that God says here is going to happen to David does happen to David over the next 20 years of David's life. God says, David, the sword is never going to depart from your house. You killed someone with a sword, and now the sword, violence, is not going to depart from you. And as we read on in in, in David's story, you know, he had said that the man who took that lamb should pay back fourfold what he took. And the rest of David's story, we're going to find out that four of David's sons die before he does. That's the fourfold restitution that David said the rich man needed to pay. It says here, God says, I'm going to raise up adversity from your own own household. Well, that happens too. One of David's sons named Absalom tries to usurp David's throne and take his kingdom from him. We'll read about that soon. And, And then he says, you took another man's wife. And so David, what's going to happen to you? Someone's going to take your wives. And that's what Absalom does. When he usurps his throne, he takes David's concubines up on the roof of the palace, the very same place where David walked when he looked down and saw Bathsheba taking her bath. And he sleeps with them. God said in verse 12, what you did, you did in secret. But this is going to happen in the light of day. Wow, I mean, this this is the message that God sent Nathan to deliver to King David. This, This was a convicting word. This was a word that cut David straight through to the heart. But you know what? God's word still cuts straight through to the heart today. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. Look at these words. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. So one person put it in in David's case, God's word came to him through Nathan the prophet. 
But, but in our case, today, God's Word comes to us a number of different ways. It might come to us just when we pick up a copy of the Bible and we read it and God convicts us. It might happen when a Christian friend, we're talking about a situation in our life, something that we're about to do or something that we've done, and a Christian friend confronts us and rebukes us with the truth of the Word of God that what we're doing does not line up with what God has said. Or it might even be in a sermon like this one where God confronts us. His word becomes like a sword that penetrates our hearts and, and brings that conviction to bear. And what we need to realize is that when God's word comes to us and convicts us like that, even though it does not feel pleasant at all, that is the grace of God at work in our life. That he loves us enough to bring that conviction to tell us that the road that we are walking down is not a road that leads to life. It is a road that leads to death. That is the love of God. We sang earlier, oh, how he loves us. This is one of the ways that he loves us, by convicting us with his powerful word. And again, friend, maybe right now that's happening in your life. Maybe right now God is loving you enough to put his finger right on that spot, that area of your life where you know your life does not line up with the word of God. Friend, that is his convicting grace at work. And he's calling you to turn back to him. And I pray we would respond to that convicting grace the same way that David responds with this. Number three, the grace of repentance. The grace of repentance. The Bible word repentance is a word that means to have a change of heart, to have a change of will where we're broken over our sin, where we truly want to change and live in a way that pleases God. We see that heart of repentance in what David says. In verse 13, look at that with me. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Some people have criticized this statement. They've said, you know, it's just, it's just not enough, right? He doesn't, doesn't say enough here. He just says, well, he, he's, he's sinned. Well, of course he's sinned. He needs to say more. Well, I'd say a couple of things to that. First of all, I would say we have the fuller account of David's confession in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 that were written at the time of this. So we know, we have more information to go on to know what was going on in David's heart when he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. But also I would say, even from this statement alone, what, what strikes me the most is not even so much what David says as what David doesn't say. Because David says these words after hearing all of the consequences that God has just said are going to happen to him because of his sin. And David just says, I have sinned against the Lord. He, he doesn't argue with God about those consequences. He doesn't say, God, that's not fair. He doesn't say, God, you're being too harsh. He doesn't rationalize his sin. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't minimize it. He admits it and he accepts the judgment of God upon his life. You know, it, it bothers some people, even some Christians. When I've talked with other believers about David, it bothers some Christians that he is called a man after God's own heart because of the things that we know that he did. But you know what makes a person a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart is not that they never sin. It's that they are receptive to the conviction of God's word 
when it comes. In some ways, Saul's sin was not as severe as David's. And yet David does hear what Saul can never bring himself to do. He repents of his sin. And so, friend, again, what about you? As God's word comes to you and it comes to me with with convicting power, what will be our response? Will we respond like King Saul and minimize and excuse and rationalize and downplay? Or like David, will we accept that we have sinned against God and accept whatever consequences may come? talked about the grace of pursuit and the grace of conviction and the grace of repentance. That brings us to the most wonderful grace of all, the grace of forgiveness. Now David has admitted his sin. He's he's confessed it. He's repented of it. But again, earlier in this story, after Nathan shared his parable with David, David had already cast his judgment on that rich man, hadn't he? Remember, he said, that man deserves to die. And if that man deserved to die for just taking away a lamb, how much more does David deserve to die who has committed adultery, who has committed a murder, who has taken another man's wife? David has has convicted himself with his own mouth. He's already pronounced the judgment and the sentence. I deserve to die for what I have done. And that's what makes this response in verse 13 from God so amazing. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And again, this bothers many people as well because we feel this is not right. David is getting off far too easy. He does deserve to die. He should die. This is not right what God is doing. That He's, he's letting David off the hook with, with just a slap on the wrist. And I understand that we might feel that way, but church, we need to be careful before we walk down that road, that line of thinking, because when we begin to do that, actually what's happening is this story is just repeating itself. In the same way that David heard that parable from Nathan and said, that man deserves to die, what's happening when we do that is we are hearing the story of David's life, and we are hearing that, and we are pronouncing judgment, and we are saying, that man deserves to die. And no sooner have we said that than God's prophet shows up to us and looks us in the eye and says, you think that man deserves to die? You are the man. You are the woman. Because what does the Bible say in Romans 6, 23? We all have sinned. And the wages of our sin is death. It's not just David that deserves to die. We have to accept this. We all deserve to die for what we have done. We are the man. We are the woman. We have sinned against God, and our sin against an infinitely perfect, holy, righteous God is an infinite sin that deserves an infinite death. This is what God's Word teaches us. And so do we really want to do that? Do we really want to insist on everybody getting what they deserve? Or do we, like broken people like David, want to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and ask for a forgiveness that we do not deserve? Well, God does forgive David. And thankfully, when we come to Christ in brokenness, God will forgive us. 
But then look at what Nathan says next. Right after announcing that God will forgive David, has forgiven David. Look at what Nathan says next in verse 14 and 15. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his own house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. This is a key part of this story, that just because God forgives us of our sin doesn't mean that there will be no consequences. Here's another way to say that. That God is gracious to forgive does not mean that our sin will have no ongoing consequences in our life. And some people are really confused by that. They think, well, you know, I mean, if God has forgiven me and all, then, then why is my life so hard still? If God has forgiven me for what I've done, then why is my marriage not restored? And why don't I have my job back? And, and why do I still have to deal with this? And why do I still have to do, deal with that? But this is what we need to remember. That the very fact that God forgives us in and of itself is a wonderful blessing that we need to thank God for. Regardless of what happens in our earthly circumstances, the fact that God wipes our sin away, that we, as one person put it, don't have to live under his frown forever. But we can live in the pleasure of his grace. That we can know that there will be no eternal consequences that we deserved because Jesus Christ has paid for them at the cross. But God's forgiveness does not mean that in our earthly lives here and now that he will take away every consequence for what we have done. David's story teaches us that. And so here David tells, or God tells David, I've forgiven you, but the child is going to die. Let's read what David does next. Verse 16, therefore David pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. And when David saw that his servants were whispering... David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David clearly loves this child and he goes in and he falls down before the Lord and for a week, solid, he does not eat, he does not sleep, his servants come to him, they try to, to, to make him rise, they try to make him eat, but he will not do it. He, he is pleading before God for this child. 
And even though in this instance, I would just say this, even though in this instance God says no to David's prayer, David was right to ask. And the fact that David does ask shows how much he understood about the graciousness of God. When his servants come and they ask him, we don't understand what you're doing. We, why, why did you act like this? Why, why are you, normally people mourn after somebody dies. You, you were mourning and fasting and praying before he died, and now you take a shower, you put on your cologne, you go in and you worship, you're having a meal. Why, why are you, we don't understand this. And David appeals to the grace of God. He says, I was praying and I was fasting and I was crying out to God because who can tell? I I did not know whether what God said would happen to my child was his final word or not. And so I was going to bring that request to my father. Maybe he was prompting me to pray. Maybe he was prompting me to fast. And so I'm going to go to him. And I'm going to present my request before him and I'm going to let him decide. And now he has decided. I'm going to get up. I'm going to keep worshiping him. And I wish we had more time to spend here, but on verse 23, David says about his son who has just died, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I I think this is such an encouraging word for every parent in this room who has ever lost a child through miscarriage or in infancy before they are old enough to understand the gospel and respond to the gospel. Here is David, the same one who wrote the words, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knows where he is going, and he said, this child will not return to me, but I'm going to return to him. I'm going to have a personal reunion with him. And I believe in this text that God is giving us that assurance that even Though our departed children cannot come to us, that we can one day go to them and be reunited with those that we have lost. There's one more kind of grace I want us to see in this story, and it's the grace of restoration. You know, David prayed in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And David was restored to the joy of his salvation, and God restored David to his service again. For the sake of time, we won't read it, but at the very end of this chapter, there's a a section there just dealing with with this battle that really started back at the beginning of, or in chapter 10. Now we see the culmination of this battle, and now David is out fighting with God's people again. He's where he should have always been. It's where he should have been at the beginning of chapter 11. Now he is there, acting like a king again. God has restored him to service. But look at verses 24 and 25. It says, Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the first word of love and comfort in this story in terms of the relationship with, between David and Bathsheba. It says he comforted her. She's called by her name for the first time in a while as well. Not the wife of Uriah, but Bathsheba. Because now they were married. And now they had both suffered a loss. And David goes in, he comforts her. And what is the result of this comfort? A child is born that they name Solomon. And maybe they're wondering, maybe this child's going to die too. 
Maybe they were thinking that. I couldn't help them if they did think that, right? I mean, our last child died. Maybe every child that we're going to have is going to be doomed to death because we never should have gotten married in the first place. And so God sends Nathan back to them again with a reassuring word. And Nathan not only says that this child is not going to die, he gives this child a special name. He says, I'm calling this child Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. And, and wouldn't you know it, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, and this is just mind-blowing to me, that of all the children, out of all the sons that David had with all of the wives that David had, which one would God pick to be his successor to take the throne after him? This one. In fact, fast forward 900 years to Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is born, and this is his genealogy. Look at this. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. (laughs) Isn't it just like God to do that? To choose Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, that David should not even have been married to in the first place, to pick him as a part of his salvation plan, as a part of the very line, the genealogy that leads to Jesus Christ, our Savior. This, as much as anything in this story, shows us that there is a way back into fellowship with God no matter where we have come from. That the grace of God is so strong and so powerful that no matter what we have done, there is restoring grace from God if we would come into his presence. That no matter how great our sin is, sinners like you and me can be saved, can be forgiven, can be restored, and can even be used as a part of God's plan. This is amazing grace, but we have to do what David did. And when we're confronted with our sin, we have to repent of that sin. We have to bring that sin before our God and confess it. Look at these words again from Psalm 51 that David wrote. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's always in front of my eyes. Before we come to the Lord's table, I want us just to take a minute or two and just with those words from David in our hearts and our minds, I just want us to pray. I'm going to ask you if you're physically able to, to join me on your knees for just a moment or two and, and just to pray. Ask God, is there any sin in my life that you're putting your finger on right now, that you're putting your convicting finger on, that you're calling me to confess and to repent of before I come to your table. Let's pray for the Lord.